Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're back, baby! Yeah, hello everybody. How are you? Welcome to another edition of the Dangerous Dinners podcast. I am your host, as always, Tom Green. Through the best and worst takeaways delivering to us tonight, you know how we roll. Um, little two-week break. Wasn't supposed to be a break. Wasn't, wasn't supposed to be a break at all. But one week became two weeks, and you know, you know how these things go. It's the nature of podcasting, isn't it? I basically, I, I did 30 radio shows in a row, and I think that threw me off a little bit. Um, yeah, from like mid-August to start of September, 30 straight shows. And my head was blagged. I had no space for podcasting. I, I told all my anecdotes, and I wanted to get in a little shed for a bit and turn the world off. But hey, we're back with a vengeance. Um, some fun guests lined up, actually. We have got, next week, okay, we have got a guest who is, in his world, the biggest possible person. You don't get any bigger in the in the field this guy is in than next week's guest, which is very good. We've got some great musical guests coming up, but this week, we are joined by a man who was there at the inception of Grime, okay? So, the likes of your Stormzies, your Skeptors, your Daves, this guy was there from like day one when this was a small little industry filming the whole thing he's called risky roads he's rooney he's the ceo of the risky roads production company i've known this guy for a few years because he's uh for a long time looked after grime gran everyone's favorite gran online but rooney started because he was the man who basically filmed grime so this was before the internet. He made DVDs of grime artists like Skepta and uh, who else has he done? Dizzy Rascal. He was the guy filming them, putting a face to a name. Um, he's so well known. He's so incredibly talented in his field. And it was an honor to sit down with Rooney for an hour and talk about what he's done. You know, grime's taken over the world. And this guy was there at its inception. Let's get him on the show. It's Risky Road CEO Rooney himself. The Dangerous Dinners Podcast with your host, Tom Green. One celebrity guest, one spin of the roulette wheel, and a tour of the best and worst takeaways, which are delivering to us tonight. What will it land on? We let fate decide. Up for grabs today, we have the poorly reviewed Kansas Fried Chicken. Everybody's favorite, Lahore Karahi. And if it all goes wrong, Pizza Palace. But before we do that, it's time to meet our celebrity guest. They're famous, they're funny, and they just arrived downstairs. It's time to bring them up. Please welcome. It's the Risky Road CEO himself. Hey. It's Rudy. Hey, what's up, mate? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm really good. How are you? Yeah, man. Yeah, really good. Keeping busy. Keeping busy. Can't complain. I think this is the first time we've done the thing, which is just me and you, which is not with Grimegram, <laughs> which is quite a funny, very 2021 thing that I imagine has happened to your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it was mad the other day. Like, it's uh, it's like even Nan gets spotted quite a lot. Nan's become like a celebrity on her own. And uh, obviously now bringing my brother into the football world and stuff like that, it's really weird. Like the other day I went to Arsenal with Nan and, and Bo. And I was like the the one nobody knew. <laughs> it's like Bo was like, "That's how it feels when I go to the music events." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was a surreal one, but it was good. It's good. It's nice, you know. To put everyone in the picture, we got to know each other because Grime Gran came on my radio show and she came on quite a few times and you at that point sort of looked after her and then Bo, your brother, started looking after her. That's sort of how this 
this happened? Yeah, so basically, um, I had an idea for the for Nan show. A friend of mine, Louis, helped me to create it and get it out there to the masses. And Nan became a celebrity on her own. And you came calling to get her on. And uh, yeah, she was there. She was on uh, on Kiss. Yeah, I was looking after her at the time, and then my brother's part of it. It just got. I just got busy doing the other bits and. My brother's always one of them. He he like he's very organised. My brother, he's uh, he, I'm the creative. He's very organised, and uh, that's why he's so good with all the football stuff because he just his stats and all of that. Like he's uh, he's been a great asset to it and helped push it forward. And yeah, so now anyone who messages for Nan has to speak to Bo. And it was so funny because when I was researching you and researching like the amazing legacy that Risky Roads, your production company and grime filming has had, it was so funny to see all of that and then you on the Good Morning <laughs> yeah. Britain sofa yeah. with Nan. It yeah, was quite a contrast. It's been a, it's been a journey, that's for sure. Multiple different uh, different avenues has gone down, you know, and uh I think Nan played her own vital role in it because she was like one of the early investors. Um, she bought my camera, my mum bought my computer. Without them, uh, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, you know? So to tell their story and have them do whatever is a big part of it. And uh, Nan also as well, bringing her into like Good Morning Britain and things like that, it helps to smash down media misconceptions of rappers. And that was the whole reason like behind me kind of starting Grime Grand as well, the series, because People, all our media like to portray rappers in a certain way when they're not that at all. And you put them sat on a sofa with a, what, what then was an 81-year-old lady, their misconceptions are kind of put to bed, you know? Yeah, I think that's what I always loved about the Grime Grand series is Nan was like the absolute leveller of everyone. There was no bravado. Everyone becomes yeah. a sweet grandson when talking to your nan. And I think that's a lovely side to see of a lot of people because that's not only in the grime world. That side of people is, is always quite held back for just their family. So to see that of like Skepta is cool. Again, that was uh, another idea behind it. Like Nan, Nan's known the boys from young, you know, like from when they first started coming around in like 2004. So she's seen them grow and gave encouraging words over the years to carry on going and things like that. So yeah, when you see uh, one of the artists sat on the sofa, you're gonna see them as we know them, you know? So you're gonna get the, a fan is gonna see the real artist, like not the, like a media form or anything like that. It's literally how they genuinely are because that's how Nan knows them. Yeah. And how does it feel for you being on this side of the camera and doing more of the interviews and having your face out there and not being the man holding the stuff? I enjoy it now. Like when I first started, um, it, I probably it would have been a lot harder for me. But um, over the years, you like you build confidence and you gain like you you learn to kind of own who you are, if that makes sense, you know. And uh, now being in front of a camera and telling a story or being able to be filmed and present something, I really enjoy it. And uh, it's something that hopefully I get the opportunity to do a bit more of because I do I do genuinely enjoy it now. Whereas, like I said before, I was a very, when I first started Risky Roads, Risky Roads was kind of like, um, it was like my mask. Rooney was quite shy and quiet. So when I was Risky Roads, I could be somebody different. And not that I was any different, but it was like a, a whole other persona, you know, like, people that knew you at school who thought you was quiet or whatever and now nah, you're something else you know and now nah, risky roads and Rooney are one and the same so it's kind of got to that level of i enjoy it now i find it hard to sum up who you are and what you've done in like a few sentences because i always when i get guests on i always like to go okay so this is who they are this is what <laughs> they do if you don't know them this is what it is i don't want to put words in your mouth i want you to tell me what you think your career is and you think your legacy is. For me, you basically put grime on the map and took it from this small little industry and you filmed it and then made it something else. Yeah, like so I I was one of the first people to pick up a camera. So it was me, uh, Ratty and A+. We was the ones who's kind of like, we put visuals to voices and sounds. And from that, like basically I was just a fan. So I'm a fan who wants to know what certain people look like. I want to get into the scene. I couldn't MC. This was my way in. And then from documenting, I become like a documenter, then a director, and now 
production company. That's kind of been my journey and being able to put visuals to to the sounds of grime, putting faces to names and in a way helping to create the aesthetic of what grime looks like and what British music where it is now, you know, like that's kind of what I am and what, what I've done. I'm going to stop you yeah. there, right? Because okay, cool. I want to ask you yeah. so much stuff about this. Like I've got so many questions, but if we start Lovely. now, Thanks. we'll never order food. <laughs> so the whole point of the podcast is behind me is a roulette Thanks. wheel of the worst takeaways <laughs> near your house, right? I'm going to spin it, whatever it lands on. Rooney, you are eating. Give me a spin. Should we give it a go? <laughs> Get a WD-40 out. Oh, Jesus, the, the wheels broke. Hold on. Hey! <laughs> it's fish and chips. Lovely classic. I'd had it for a while. Mate, that is straight down the middle. So what What can I get you? Just a large cod and chips, I guess. A gherkin. Pickled gherkin. You got me the most East London meal. <laughs> <laughs> what else is on your board? Oh, there was loads of stuff. There oh, was no. Donna kebabs <laughs> up there. There was spicy <laughs> curries. There was McDonald's. There was Nando's. Everything is on the wheel. And you've got the most cockney we could have gone. Right. I'm going to add that there. So we've got... We've got cotton chips and we've got a gherkin i want to i want to give you something a little bit rogue in there as well because it's supposed to be dangerous dinners and i feel like people when they get things like this get off very very lightly um where do you stand on a pickled onion yeah i don't mind a pickled onion fine you've got a pickled onion you've got a gherkin and you've got a large fish and chips that sounds like a banging dinner lovely thank you very much (laughs) i'm also gonna throw in a battered sausage as well taking me back to school then Mate, I am jealous of this dinner you're having. This sounds so good. Let's go. It's going to be 40, it's going to be 40 minutes, so we better get moving. So I'm glad we got that out of the way because now I can just relax and chat to you and we can start. So Rooney, you ended up running Risky Roads, which was basically the start of filming Grime and putting it on DVDs. But originally you were a DJ, right? Yes. Yeah, I was. Yeah, basically... A guy called Sparky started, like me and him started Risky Roads and I met him through Riven Division. I used to go in there buying vinyl, basically at school. Uh, A friend of mine, Chunky, Ryan, he had decks and went round his, had a little mix and I thought, oh, I I like this. And um, my mum got me a a set of decks um, that got me into music. You know, he always used to listen to pirate radio and tape packs and stuff like that. But getting decks really showed me Riven Division. And then Riven Division obviously played a big part in my journey and grime. So um, DJing was definitely a big stepping stone into what I am now. And what was the party scene in London like at that point? Was it raves around the M25? Was it that generation? Uh, I used to, it was weird because you used to like, back then I would have been, I was only like 14, 15. So we used to go to like the under 18 raves. So you go Time and Envy in Romford or Hollywood in Romford and, that was, or like, you know, Benji's in, in Mile End, like, and they would be the places that you go to. But the, yeah, uh, the under 18 events, they always used to have all the MCs in there. So you'd get like a load of the boys go there and jump on a mic or uh, like jumping jacks. There was a few different ones, to be honest. And, and then my, and a, a few of my mates used to put on their own raves and I ended up DJing at a few of their events. I think for the last time I ever DJed, I kind of, um, before I picked up the camera, my last set that I DJed was, um, I had I did a warm-up for EZ, and I had PSG and Creed on my set. And I was like, I'm not going to get, yeah, I'm not going to get any bigger than this, doing what I'm doing, like DJing-wise. I'm bailing out on that. And that was the last time I ever played out on a set, warm-up for EZ, PSG and Creed. <laughs> like, I'm 27. So I grew up as, in a, just before youtube world right and i remember i'm from preston so that world was a different thing to us in london and i remember we would like listen to kiss at night and we'd all know the and we wouldn't know why we would know it and we just know these little bits of like the mc culture from london that we would just pick up and run with and we were just like kids in a nothing school in preston just walking around going we do it we do it do it again <laughs> it was mad <laughs> yeah that, that that lyric is iconic and it will all forever be you know i think we, like that era old school garage holds a special part in a lot of people's lives you know and like just getting into my flat now i've i found my 1210s at my mum's and set them up here so i've got a load of vinyl on my 1210s here so 
had little mix the other day. It's, I've still got it, to be fair. I could uh, still hold a mix. It's well pleased with myself. And, mate, holding a mix on vinyl is a whole other kettle of fish. Oh, my God. There's no beat match on that, bad boy. You don't even get a readout. You've got to do that all by ear. Yeah, it completely, yeah. Pitch, the pitch finder on the side of the deck, like, literally, like, little touch ear on the, on the plate. That was it. That was, but yeah, I still got it. I was, I was well pleased with myself. I thought oh, I was going to be like pots and pans central in here, but it was actually all right. I was well, yeah, I had a nice little, uh, little mix session. I wanted to ask this question earlier. I completely forgot. Just what are the household names now that people would know that you came up with at the time and have seen from day one? Wow. So a few of the names who I come up with in the beginning, Kane, Skepta, Gets, Dizzy, Wiley, um, even Mike Skinner in the early days, we got him on the DVDs. Um, Lethal Bizzle. Oh, God. Sorry if I forgot anyone. It's on the spot question, but literally the whole scene, like literally, like um, Target, all the Roll Deep boys, like crazy. Like it's where you see where everyone's gone to now, you know, and how we all started. So pretty special. And what was crazy is this was before a YouTube age. So tell us how it worked. Like you just picked up a camera, you went to go and see these guys, you filmed it, and then you slapped it on a DVD. Is that what happened? Yeah, pretty much in a nutshell. So basically I went to, um, I went to university um, first day at uni. Tutor said something about Adobe Premiere, which is a video editing software that kind of sparked something in me because I used to watch the American DVDs and uh, one of my mates, Troy, used to film the rate, some of the radio sets. He had one called Jammer's Birthday Bash that was out in Riven Division. So I used to go to Riven Division all the time and I had a Saturday job in there while I was at, at uni. And I remember going in the next day to Sparky who worked in there. I said, look, you know a lot of the MCs better than me because you've been here longer. Like, get in touch with the MCs, tell them we're going to do a DVD. He was like, well, I ain't got a clue how to do that. I said, don't worry about that. I'll work it out. Um, and that's what we've done. My nan got me a camera. My mum, I had a PC at the time, but it wasn't powerful enough once the edit came in. So my mum got me a, a computer. And we used to go out filming. Sparky used to contact the ones he knew. I contacted the ones I knew. Put a big list together of who we wanted. My DJ name was Risky, which is my initials, RSK. And I put a Y on the end. And then, like, you're going on the road. So I created the name Risky Roads, found the font, created a cover, started shooting. And, uh, yeah, literally that was it. Going out there, filming who wanted to film, taught myself to edit as I was going along, bought a load of books, worked it all out, exported it, put it on a DVD, and that was the beginnings. And that camera you got at the start, which... So I watched um, yesterday the the skepta freestyle which is on i uh, which is on sbtv and you're filming that and you've got this mad thing on your shoulder is that the original camera no 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 the original camera was a camcorder so it's just like a little camcorder that you go on holiday with um nan bought me that and uh that started it and then i got this one next so this one tattooed on me that's the one that kind of that's when i got serious so that's why i put it like the other one was like a fan filming. This one was broadcast, like could have been like broadcast quality at the time. And that was, that just showed me that I'm in business now. Like this was, I'm taking, like I'm doing this properly. And uh, yeah, we leveled up and started filming. And then off the back of the Risky Roads, I've done a couple of other DVDs. So I've done um, F Radio with Getz and that. And I've done the movement documentary with, with the movement. And then, I started getting into music videos, directing music videos. That, again, is another progression step. And it's kind of that, that whole process of evolve or be extinct. And I've just evolved and redesigned myself, different paths. And they've kind of all brought me back to this TV world because in between them, are, like in between um, the DVDs and video directing, I actually worked for a TV production company called RDF. We used to make um, Secret Millionaire and Wife Swap and and uh, Shipwrecked. Uh, so I was an editor there. So TV has always been a part. So I've learned little bits all along the way, which has now got me in a position where I am now to be speaking with commissioners and pitching stuff. So in those early days, how would you how would you move these DVDs? Would you sell them individually? Like, how did you make money off this? So 
he used to he used to put them in the record shops, the independent record shops. So, um, like you had your five main in the, uh, independent record shops. So at the time, it was Riven Division, Independence in South, uh, Black Market, and uh, Uptown in um, West End. There was one in Cambridge East Road, Paul for Music, and somewhere else. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. They they heard that like. The, the people used to go in there and say, oh, it's Risky Road. Have you got Risky Roads? Have you got Risky Roads? Because word of mouth started to spread through the forums that we was doing it. They used to contact you and ask for a set number of units. Used to take them to there. And then one of our pals, um, Gary, uh, used to run a distributing company, Dump Valve, who he manages, or he works with Casper now and does all the dubstep stuff. But um, yeah, he used to be a distributor for all of the um, DVDs and vinyl and just give him copies and he used to take them and that's how it kind of went it was like literally like a word of mouth sale with shops or distributors and pretty crazy and now there's such an industry for this stuff grime's on a whole other planet now in terms of people wanting to get grime artists and get them on the radio and get them played and get their instagram numbers because people get paid off it but i guess at that time was there any of that was there a path to like success or were these people just doing it because they wanted to do something no there wasn't even youtube then you know we all just we was all just fans we knew we all had faith that it would become something we all knew eventually something would come from it you know like you'd started to see it with dizzy and kano being signed and but no one really knew what it was going to become and where it was going to go but everyone knew it was going to be something i think it was just that thing of all having faith in each other and you build up that trust with everyone. We're all friends. We all want to see each other do well. And it's that. And just seeing where it is now just makes you so proud, I think, on multiple levels for everyone, you know, like from the beginnings that we come from. Back then, everyone was happy to just maybe get a book in for 100 quid, you know what I mean? Or a weekend or to now, £100,000 shows, you know? Yeah. But what's crazy is the sound that I remember listening to in school it has taken until very recent for that to be the sound that is represented on the radio. The tunes that you heard from people like Dizzy 10 years ago, it was the sound, but it was made very friendly and pop. Whereas now, what I hear on the radio, I'm like, that is what I remember it sounding like when I was at the back of the bus in Preston listening to this stuff. Yeah, it's kind of like, I think things go in circles. And I think when you've got like, it's got to a point now where before as a, I suppose as a music scene, England used to look to the States to see what they was doing as well. As much as like we, and then we started to develop our own sound and now it's got to the point where everyone's looking to England. When you've got that level of elite music, there's no reason to change it or adapt it to be whatever. It's kind of got to that point where the fan base is there regardless. So it's up to the radio stations to move with the times and play that kind of music. Whereas before there was other stuff going on. So it was their choice to what they wanted to play. Where now, I think there's so many young kids that are tuned in to the sounds of like the UK music that they've got no other choice but to play what they want to hear. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, is Drake? Did Drake hit you up? What's that rumor? I heard Drake hit you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was a, well, a few years ago now. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was at work at the time, um, and I opened up my Instagram, and I had like. I don't know, four or 500 new followers. I'm thinking, what's going on here? And I scrolled down and it said, Champagne Pappy follows you. So I just, I messaged him and said, thanks for the follow, big fan. Like, I was a massive fan of Drake's for years. And he's like, yeah, likewise, whatever. And we we started talking, built up a friendship. And then maybe a year later, um, one of my pals was moving over to Miami. So we was all, like a couple of boys, like, oh, let's go over to Miami. And, uh, one of my other friends was like, oh, well, you're over there. Drake's over there. So I was like, oh, that's mad. So I messaged him. I said, oh, I'm in Miami when you're, when you're there. And he was like, oh, it hit me up, sent me his mobile number. Um, and I took a couple of the old Risky Roads. I had a couple of spare copies. And so I know he had it, he watched it through the internet, but never had the copies. So I had, I had like one of each of the other DVDs, took them out there. And uh, we, when we was out there one day, we was at the beach. Like, you know, you just don't expect to be contacted. Like, we was about an hour and a half, two hours away from our hotel. And we were in shorts, T-shirts and sandals or whatever, just on the beach. I got this message from Drake saying, like, like he rang me as it goes. He rang me and uh, he went, yo. And the phone cut out. And then he texted me. He said, reception's bad. I'm in the arena. 
how many of you um here's my my assistant's name and number shout him when you're there so we've gone to there told him there was like six of us we he had access to areas triple a passes free drink passes for all of us and <laughs> gone into this thing we're all in shorts and beachwear and everyone's in suits and fat joe's there rihanna's here like it was just the most random thing and uh yeah it was a proper good night and then we met up with him later on at a uh, a party he had a he had a party afterwards that was surreal in itself like i'm in there with uh two of my pals um both cat they're both cab drivers and uh drake's walked into this room and he see me and he's going rudy so that was like like bizarre it was like this is nuts and yeah we had a good old conversation but yeah we we, we still speak to this day he's a he's a really good guy like got good heart and genuinely good person you know he loves england doesn't he i really get the vibe that he's like a proper anglophile like he's all about the uk yeah definitely he loves loves everything to do with england i've told him he has to come and meet nan for a cup of tea he was up for it as well so some point in life hopefully the the times are lying and the schedules are lying and we get him to to meet nan because that would be that would be hilarious a grime grand special with drake would be a no-brainer special on channel four wouldn't it i would I'd, that's pay-per-view for me. It? <laughs> Imagine, it would just be, uh, yeah, that'd be a, a real crazy, crazy, uh, crazy turn up for the books. Uh, she she likes him as well. Like, I've played his music for years. Like He's one of my favourite artists. You can't, it's kind of, that in itself is surreal. Like, knowing and calling friends one of your favourite artists, you know? Mad. Yeah, that is crazy. He's, um, He's the coolest and he seems very genuine. I like the fact that wherever he goes, he gets like local artists to jump on his tunes and he jumps on their tunes. I just think that's really nice. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, he's a, like I said, I, I think he's like just a real genuinely good hearted person, you know, like, and uh, like I said, he never had to reach out to me. And then later on, I went to Amsterdam. He's got a concert in Amsterdam. He gave me tickets to come to the show and like them sort of things. You know, you haven't got to do that. You're the biggest artist in the world, you know, like, He's just a genuinely, genuinely good geezer. What's crazy as well is like you look back at that whole Risky Roads period in your life now and you really created a look. There's a look people from your videos went, okay, that's what a grind video looks like. That's what we're going to create it. That's so sick that you made that piece of art that people now rip off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's wild because I do see things on telly sometimes and I think, that's me. (laughs) That's that's, that's my style or whatever. But it's, yeah, no, it's nice, it's nice, you know, like, to be able to, you know, like that aesthetic, like I said, like to to be filming in that early years, we helped build an aesthetic of what UK music looks like, and that's a that's a great thing. You know what? To to not to not to name dropping that, but I know you said about the uh, we had a conversation about the Drake thing. I thought that was that was mind blowing, but the most wild one I've had is one of my Twitter followers. One of my Twitter followers is Barack Obama. Barack Obama follows me on Twitter. I would love to know that Barack Obama is a Risky Roads fan. I think that's real cool. That, that one is the that one is a random one. Uh, I thought Drake was massive, and then like a year or so later, I had Barack follow me. That was just like, well, this is mad. <laughs> you know what? Actually, let's stay in this, not name dropping, because I want one hundred percent endorse it, and I think it's the coolest thing to talk about things that you've been through. What's the craziest moment out of your whole career? What's been the most wild night? One of my favourite nights, it was a late night, random, randomest night ever, was probably when we'd done the Skepta video, man, that was a good night. Like, literally, it was, um, Skepta said, you ready to shoot tonight? So I said, yeah, waiting for him. Typical Skepta fashion, got the phone call at, like, half two, three in the morning. Gone to, uh, picked up the camera, got to meet, met, got to met him uh, in, in a club on Kingsland Road, filmed in there done all the bits in there and then after we'd done that um we'd done one of the other scenes so like um he bought like an old banger left it on one of the side roads so we'd come out of the club walked across and then they just smashed this car up for the video so like this this video is on the side road of a kingsler road just getting like sprayed and smashed and from part of the video and it was just that was a proper crazy crazy night but uh, a, a big laugh as well. So that was for the Kanichiwa album, right? That was fairly recent. Yeah, the Kanichiwa album I done, man, and it ain't safe. Um, so we've done them, done, done them two videos off that album. So um, yeah, very proud of that. And again, big up Skepta for giving me the shout to do that because uh, yeah, it's a, it's a 
good experience. I've got a few mates that work in the grime world and in music and stuff. Uh, and you getting a call at two in the morning to do a music video does not surprise me. I mean, they make great music, but my God, is it disorganized? <laughs> yeah, I know. You have to kind of, even with the documentary stuff, you know, it's very much like I've worked with some production companies as well as like when when it's been like before I was set out doing them through my own company. And uh, you'd get like, uh, uh, who are we filming tomorrow for the call sheet? And be like, I don't know yet. And it takes them a while to get their head around that they don't know who you're going to, it's literally like the next day, it's like, who's about? You're around? Yeah, all right, we're coming to meet you. And it's go. Like there's no, there's not real planning as such. Like you have a loose outline, but it never, ever goes to that outline of what it is. It always goes another way. Everyone's kind of better now. I suppose now the world's got a bit, it's a bit more professional and everyone's used to it. Um, But yeah, it's still, it's still got its, uh, still got its, moments <laughs> so with that with that skepta video were you genuinely just invited along to a party and told to film the video at a party it wasn't set up it was like this was actually happening this party was happening and you were now going to do a video there we had we had a loose outline for like me and skepta had a conversation of what he wanted and and that kind of thing and it was just like when we get in there like it's very it's kind of like the man the man video is very it's not so much real performance in it it's kind of a lot of like fly on the wall kind of weird documentation of like a night and people moving around and it's kind of like culture captured in, in a segment of, of time. And that was what it was. So it was going there and capture these little moments that we can add to this video and build it up. And, uh, and it worked out perfectly. It worked out um, amazing. Like it was a, that, that's one of my favorite videos I've done because it's very, um, it's it's a, it's a special moment and uh that kicked off again that whole vhs aesthetic coming back um we did me and skip did an article about it in in the guardian the guardian rang me up and said about oh um how this is re give a resurgence to vhs and that kind of look again and it was a that was that was skip wanting that skip was like i really want your old camera like this this has to be done on the old camera so between that video and whatever, that's, that helped that whole push of VHS coming back. Um, I was going to go and talk about food for a minute, but I feel like this has naturally led to this. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Skepta, and he feels like, out of the whole industry, he feels like the most genuine sort of artist up there with Dave and being very creative. He just feels like a full-blown artist in his in his head has that always been the case yeah skeps always had a mad creative element about him like obviously he started djing producing and then emceed later so he'd built his skills in other avenues and then come into emceeing but he's always he's always had a clear vision on what he wanted to do he's always very driven and uh he's always had his own way of doing things and um yeah, nothing but love to Skep. Skep's helped helped me multiple times in in things outside of music. You know, like I'm I'm always thankful for and the big love for for Skepta. He's definitely part of the family. At this point in the show, I'd like to play a jingle as we enter the food section of the podcast. Food. It's the food section. Oh, what a lovely jingle that was. We introduced this really because, like, as as we're sort of, as happened today, we end up not talking about food a lot. We end up talking about people's lives and music. Um, we got a lot of messages, people going, this is supposed to be a food podcast. Can you talk about food? So I've got some food questions for you, if that's all right. Yeah, I love cooking. I'm a, I'm a good chef, as it goes. Right, perfect. So... You have been arrested for a heinous crime. We can't say what it is, but you're on the old death penalty. And um, you're presented with a final meal. Starter, main, dessert. What is it that you're having? Oh, jeez. That is a tough one. I know my main. My main would be... Um, my main would be probably curry goat, rice and peas, coleslaw and a festival. That would be my main. That would be my main. Uh, dessert. Did you say and a festival? Yeah, that's like a fried dumpling. Fine, fine, fine. Amazing. And the drink would be a Guinness punch. And for the dessert, dessert, 
do like a creme brulee. Whoa, all right. <laughs> yeah. So probably that as a dessert and a starter. You know what? I had this starter the other day. Me and my, me and my missus went for a meal and I had a starter the other day and it was banging. And I would probably say I would have that. That was one of my favorite starters I think I've ever had. It was a saltfish brandade with uh, sourdough bread. And that was, I had that, I had that in Rick Stein's. It was absolutely amazing. So I'll probably say that. So hold on, talk me through that. So it's a fish start. I want to know more about it. So what was it? Yeah, so it basically is a, it's, it's, it's called a brandade. So it was like a, a kind of like a, and it come with a tapenade. So it was kind of like a, a saltfish paste, um, like a saltfish pate kind of, is probably the best way to describe it. And then it come with a, a a tapenade olive tapenade and it was just yeah that was uh that was delightful and the curried goat mane is this is this a your recipe is this a family recipe where's this how's this entered your life no it's just you know what um just from like eating west indian food from early age you know i've always loved it and i think that it's kind of like one of that's kind of one of my go-tos uh if i'm if you want something I would like that. Like, you want something a bit comforting. I would have a. I would have that. So, your meal's going to be Rick Stein's fish pate style starter, followed by a lamb curry, followed by a creme brulee. <laughs> yeah. That's lots of different vibes, which I can sort of, I can sort of get behind. And it's, it's nice to know that you're really into your food because this section works really well when people are quite passionate about what they eat. Out of all your time living in London and partying and going out and going to probably some quite nice restaurants, have you got a standout restaurant that you'd go to? Where's your favourite spot? Uh, I haven't, you know. I like to try all different places. Um, yeah, I just kind of move around. Um, sure. Are you into sort of central London fine dining? Have you done this whole, whole like going into central posh restaurant stuff or is that not your style no no I've done, I've done that as well i like that i like the old tasting menus and you know like seeing what what works with what i like to i like to have to taste something that i wouldn't put them flavor pairings together and then it kind of opens your rep- repertoire when you cook at home like, i like that kind of experience and trying things that like i said you wouldn't you probably couldn't do at home like big you gotta have a massive kitchen for like i wouldn't be able to do like a sous vide duck breast at home do you know what i mean or uh whatever and we ain't got time to to sit there and do all of that sort of stuff so to go out and have that sort of thing it's, it's nice to do and one of my best restaurants recently was definitely that rick stein one that i went to recently as an amazing restaurant so if rick's listening feel like hooking me up hook a boy up hook a boy up with some free food i'm still waiting on it rick stein i'd, I'd love to, i'd love to go i remember when we first met we bonded over the fact that you you sort of grew up around east london when i moved to london i i lived in bow for a few years and the bow bells pub pizza still is a standout for me i was just talking to em my girlfriend the other day about bow bells pub i miss that place so much man good vibe in there definitely definitely a good vibe very good place you know what though there's a, an amazing pizza place in hackney wick called natura amazing italian well I, I used to live obviously in bow so i'd go to hackney wick quite a lot in london and hackney wick's really cool but Hackney Wick is sort of like, these days it's quite upmarket, right? It's sort of quite gentrified. It's, there's loads of nice bars. What I lived about living in the area of Bow I lived in is it was it was the most East London. As a Preston boy, it was exactly what East London in my head was going to be like. This feels like being next to the Cray Twins. And that's what the Bow Bells pub for me was. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, uh, it is pretty cool in there. It was pretty cool. My, my, my nan's uncle was friends with the uh, craze. That's how East End I am. This is classic East End. Like, I knew, I think me and Grime Grand spoke about it when I last spoke to her about like her connection with the craze. Everyone's got a craze story if you grew up in East London. Yeah, yeah. my, nan, my nan's uncle um, went to their wedding. So my nan knew, my nan knew their aunt and, and uh, yeah, mad, really, when you think about it. What's her opinion on them? Where does she stand on that whole part of her life? Uh, she she just saw it, like she just remembered them as like she was like no one would ever trouble anybody. They wouldn't ever trouble anybody unless they was in their world with them. But they always made sure that people were safe. Like if no one would go out their way to mug like an old lady or nothing like that because they knew that 
it wouldn't be worth their while. Do you know what I mean? Someone, so she always said that they always kind of knew them for that. Like they was always like, they looked after the ones who couldn't look after themselves and the, the ones that obviously got on the wrong side of them, they had their altercations with. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Like what you said, if you entered their world, you entered their playground, right? You were fair game. But if you weren't in that vibe, you were left to do your own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they'd look out for the ones who was vulnerable. It's kind of like mind your own business and you're not, <laughs> you're not part of anything else, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we've done the food thing. We spoke about the early days of Risky Roads. I want to talk about when you completely stepped away from entertainment and you left it all behind and you became, for a while, a black cab driver in London, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I did the knowledge. Uh, basically, um. I had some life situations um, go on and I had Risky Roads as a record label. We had some artists signed on the label. I had an investor in it. Uh, some money went into one of the singles and the single didn't do what we all expected, um, which was a bit of a heartbreaking time and on top of like some other stuff that was going on personally. And I just needed like a little bit of a, uh, a reset and a refresh and my stepdad and a few of my uncles or cab drivers and I knew that if I could get that it would I, I wouldn't have to worry about money because I could go and get what I wanted when I wanted but it would also give me the freedom to continue to do this stuff at a later date when I'd kind of had my refresh and that reset but even during the knowledge I ended up doing the music videos like I did a few for Kano during the while I was doing the knowledge um so I kind of stepped away for a while, but it was only it wasn't as as long as I thought I would be. You know, like music's got this way of pulling you back in, and uh, it wasn't done with me. I still had stuff to do, and uh, I'm very thankful because obviously a lot's happened from that time. But I needed that year to kind of get my head straight and kind of fall back in love with what I was doing and and where it'd gone, and just to find myself again as a person. You know. I learned. I grew, I grew a lot in that in that time. The knowledge taught me that you can't like to stand on your own two feet. Like it's only you. There's no one else who can help you with anything because you're on your own. Like I had to go out on my bike. I had to learn it. I had to go and do the exams on my own. There's no one else. It's just you. And that kind of mentality built me a lot of confidence and a lot of kind of a new drive, which I implemented into the other things. So. And then I suppose the, char- the cabs kind of become a character in my in my story. Although I'm not currently doing it at the moment, I gave it back um, to, to focus on this stuff. It's always there. And eventually, please God, it gets to a point where I could just buy a cab as my car. And it's part of the journey. You know, I ain't got paid congestion charge and I can park on taxi rates. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I want to speak about that because it sounds like it sounds like that was a bit of a moment in your life. And for me, someone that's gone through career change and has gone through ups and downs and like what that teaches you, you felt that that year out of the music industry, having to hustle and having to maybe reimagine what your life would look like, that was quite pivotal in your outlook now. Yeah, definitely. Because it, it kind of like, it refocused me in a way. It made me realize that I really do want this and this is what I want to do. But also that I had the freedom as that security blanket that kind of let me push boundaries that maybe fears wouldn't have let me before because I knew that I always had that there. So it's like, no, well, let me try that. If it don't work, it don't work. I'll go and do what. So it kind of gave me an extra freedom. But um, it was definitely a, a big personal learning curve doing the knowledge. Like, like I said, I, I went through some some life stuff beforehand that kind of I felt really low. And that just let me, it gave me a new focus so I could think about that. I just had to concentrate on the knowledge. I didn't have the, the politics of the music and filming and whatever. It was just focus on the knowledge and focus on myself as a person. And that's got me here where I am now. So I'm always very, very thankful to it. Did you ever start to resent the music industry or resent the scene if it had messed you around a bit? No, I, I, there was never a resentment there. It was, all like, it was more so like, a little bit of a heartbreak, I suppose, in a, in a sense of um, like obviously with what happened with a single and the, the label, and it was it was more of like a heartbreak, in a sense of like 
I had a different way that I wanted to go with things, but it that wasn't the chosen way. The chosen way was the single and whatever. And it, it took me a minute to kind of think, well, the way I would have done things was the correct way. And that would have worked or it could have worked. It would have given us more of a stand in a bit of a, so you have to focus it and be like, you knew what you was talking about. So, all right, that didn't work, but that wasn't, that wasn't my that wasn't my path, so that stopped me from going down a route like I wasn't supposed to be in record label world. I'm supposed to be doing TV and video, you know. So you have to look at the positives and the silver linings and everything. And that if that would have blown up that single, I could have been doing record label exec stuff. That wasn't my path. My path's TV exec stuff. And I, I suppose like at the time. You, you don't see things like that and you need to come away to think, you know what? No, that was why it never worked. But like, like any hardship in life at the time, you don't know what they are until later on. And then you realize what the purpose of them was, you know, like everything's got a positive spin on it. Everything's got a reason behind why you've had to go through it. But sometimes when you're in it, it's hard to see that. So you have to come away from it to realize and, yeah, like, and I'm I'm very thankful for everything because it, it grew me as a person, thick skin, and made me realise where I wanted to go. It took me a while to see what my actual end goal was. Like, I never, ever wanted to have a channel. I didn't want to be, like, a world star hip-hop or anything like that, which is why I never went down the route of YouTube. And then it was always, like, I didn't want to give something away to YouTube. That's another one in, in like kind of like if we're going to talk about the, these kind of things with the label stuff, like the YouTube thing, when YouTube came around, that kind of killed the DVD industry. But I was never one to just give over the footage to another platform that I didn't know. So like back then, when like some of these channels was getting set up, like your, the SBTVs and whatever, I was trying to have meetings with people to say like invest in a platform and the bandwidth and the ownerships and the servers. So like the footage remains ours and people come into the website and they've got to watch it through our platform, not through a YouTube. But at the time, Grime and UK music wasn't doing what it was doing now. So it was a harder sell. No one could see where eventually the money would come from. But obviously if they would have took that chance, we'd have had complete ownership and advertising and that would have come in and it would have been a massive, like a massive industry. I never wanted to do the channel thing as a as a YouTube platform. That was never my my goal. And I think for a while it took me a it, I had to go through the directing video stage and whatever to to realize that that was never the path. The path is like formats, TV shows, entertainment in itself. You know that's where I want it. But it takes a while to discover what you want to do. But I knew that I was always I was always destined to be part of this. I just had to find which avenue that I wanted to, to take it into. And please God now that the, the one I'm in will be the one that kind of brings the fruit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes! We are here. The fish and chips are here. Really taught me through it. Yeah, so I have got, what have I got here? I've got, there's me gherkin. There's a sausage and batter and a pickled onion. And the fish and chips. Let's have a look. Oh, so he's gave me two bits of cod and no chips. 
is that a thing? We don't have any chips, so I'll give you two cards. Uh, yeah, no chips. So I've got two bits of cod, a sausage and batter, uh, a gherkin, and a pickled onion. Hey, it's it's <laughs> welcome to the Dangerous Dinners podcast, Rudy. It's a joy. It was, it was dangerous. The, the, dealing with the delivery, deliveries is dangerous. Um. Now, what I started asking you before the food turned up and it all got a bit hectic, right, is I feel like anyone that's been in the entertainment industry for a long time and has had their ups and has had their downs, you learn a lot. You learn a lot of lessons. What, throughout that whole period, is your lesson? What's your take home? What's your one bit of advice? My one piece of advice is to never give up and to never take no for an answer. (laughs) Bless me. Has the pickle juice gone to me, uh gone to my head <laughs> thank you yeah no i would say to never give up and to never take no for an answer and my take homes from the the battles and stuff you know like even with graham grand got told no by a few places um before that happened and uh it was only that my mate louis uh, the production company lemonade money at the time was like no look, let's just partner up and do it and uh, we've done a pilot and then from then it just kicked off to what it is, you know, and we wouldn't be in there if that never, if that never went on. So again, that was like a, a no that we didn't take and just made it anyway. And I feel like that's what you've got to do in this industry. It's like, don't take the no's and just, if you believe in it, make it happen. And I want to talk about the Boiler Room documentary as well, because you did, you did a documentary, which I think Boiler Room put out out or published which sounds like it was a really cool story because it was done with your dad who wasn't in your life through the risky road days yes that's correct yeah so my dad's a counselor he's actually um trained trained counselor that's his job does it in hackney wick um out of uh, a, a, a company called um a balanced life so that's him over in there and uh it was just basically i had an idea of um so let me break it down. The Rio Cinema in Dalston wanted to put on a Risky Roads. They wanted to play Risky Roads in the in a cinema. And I said to them, I don't want to just give you the DVD to put up. Like, let me make something new with like some of my favorite clips. I just thought it'd be a good idea to have my dad ask questions that he would want to know where he wasn't there at the time. So I didn't meet my dad till I was like 14. My dad wasn't around until I was like 14 and um, and then I, we, we didn't really get on. So I've done the Risky Roads thing and I'm caught up back up with him later on in life. And uh, now we're really close. But um, I just thought it'd be cool to, to have him ask me questions that he would want to know about that phase in my life when he wasn't around. And obviously with his counselling perspective, get the whys and hows and ifs and whats as well. And uh, uh, Boiler Room saw it in Rio and decided that they wanted it and... We come to an arrangement and they put it out on the Boiler Room channel as well as it being in Rio. And it must have been nice to catch your dad up on that period in your life and go, here's sort of, here's what made me the man I am today. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because obviously he's heard things and seen things. But I think obviously when you have that conversation man to man and he could ask me what it felt like at them times and, and like why I did it and what sort of feelings I was going through. It was just a different perspective. So it become like a counselling section because he would delve into things that he asked me questions that I probably hadn't thought about and why I was doing it and what, what it made me feel like when I was doing it. And, and uh, so it was, it was cool for me as, as much as it was for him. You know, we, got, we, both got, um, we both got something out of it for sure. Do you think the story of grime has been told yet in a public way that's blown up enough. Like in the way that it took the original Amy Winehouse documentary, Amy, to tell her side of the story or tell one side of the Amy story. Do you think the piece of work that represents what grime is has been made yet? Not yet, but it's coming. Like um, Me, Ratty and Troy, A+, we're like the three original cameramen. So Risky Roads, Practice Hours, Lord of the Mics and uh, Dex. We're gonna we're, we've come together and we're gonna work on on a project joint. Uh, so I feel like if anyone can tell it, it can be us. Like we was the original cameras behind it from the beginning. So I suppose our, our thing is to make a documentary that's up there, like the defiant ones of Graham. You know, like that one that 
all like we own the whole archive of the early years of grime between the three of us. So we want to kind of utilize it to tell it properly because I don't think it has been told properly. It's been like very little bits and bobs and it hasn't really covered everything. And uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to be able to do that. I think it's waiting for the Netflix moment, isn't it? It's waiting for that front page of Netflix. Here's the story. And then it's everywhere across the world because it's such a great story. And I know told right, it would get people. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It's just um, one of them taking taking a chance on doing it. Like um, It might take one little documentary beforehand with the three of us that we do as like a, a lead into who we are. And off the back of that one of who we are, then tell the story of everything. But um, And I, I suppose when, when those two documentaries are done, music musically, um, that'll probably be my last grime doc, in a sense. In a sense. Um, and then I'll focus on the other TV formats and stuff like that. Because I want to make that documentary the same like that, that, that one that is the... the the pinnacle of the docs like uh, when you talk about grime you have to watch that that's what like you want to be able to make and uh and i think with us three working together and the archive that we hold we're the best place to do that because you can't make one of these docs without the archive and us three's got it have you had any silly offers to sell the archive have people come knocking no they, no 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 it's never there's never been a question of it i've had people like they'll make silly like i need 17 hours of for their doc like uh we've got 500 quid on something like that it's like no sorry mate that's not really gonna work you have a few of them every now and again but yeah no they um yeah so that in itself is a is a mad process the phone calls you get for people asking for for footage some don't got a clue what they want they don't know anything about the scene they're just like i've seen this guy He's jumping around in the crowd and you're like, oh yeah, that's the jammer clip that you want. But they don't know who they are and who the artists are, but you're ringing me asking for footage. Immediately, it makes me like, I don't even really want to give it to you because how are you using it? You know, like, are you going to make, how are you going to make someone look or how are you going to make the scene look? So I suppose in a way we're kind of gatekeepers to to that as well. And um, that's why it's important that we get to tell the story. And Rooney, before you go, what's next? Obviously, there's the Amazon documentary, which landed a few weeks ago. What does the next few years look like? Just pitching shows and content and finding new talent and creating some more on-screen presenters and, and uh, more more kind of entertainment shows, more formats, and just kind of covering everything in TV, really, just like pitching, 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 and, and branded content and shooting pilots and that's that's kind of like my next my next few years and hopefully one day get myself a BAFTA or an Oscar and kick back and chill out on a beach somewhere um the man behind Risky Roads the man himself Rooney it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Dangerous Dinners podcast you got off lightly the wheel picked you fish and chips um you you're the only guest that's accepted the random bits of food we put in there the pickled egg the pickled gherkin you went in can you rate the food before you go? You know what? I'm actually quite gutted that the chips weren't there because what I tasted was actually very nice and I'm sure it was a very good fish and chip shop. So they let themselves down with not being able to read the order. <laughs> uh, Rooney, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the Dangerous Dinners podcast. Thank you, mate. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Cold food, but hot guests. It's the Dangerous Dinners podcast. Oh, and there we go. Another episode in the can, another one in the bag. Episode uh, 27? Is it? Is that what we're on right now? Got a lot of them. A lot of them. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed the episode, please go and give a like, a rating, a review. Scroll down, subscribe so you get this in your life every single week. If we do an episode, sometimes we fall behind. It's hard. This is my little side hustle on the side of radio and TV and all stuff. Anyway, have a lovely week. Uh, We'll be back same time next Thursday for another episode of the Dangerous Dinners podcast. Slap that five stars button, baby, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.